Welcome to episode 103 of the Star Trek Academy podcast. Today, it's the series finale of Star Trek Picard entitled The Last Generation. I'm the Academy media professor, Michael Merrick. And I'm the Academy philosophy professor, Rodney Cup. You can find us at Mastodon, Twitter, and Facebook, all with the same username, at Trek underscore Academy. Our Tumblr address is Trek Academy without the underscore. And of course, you can listen directly on our website, anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy, or even better, subscribe to us on your podcatching app so that you can get all the new episodes automatically. We'll get started with a sort of brief summary, I guess, of the last generation. I mean, the thing was over an hour long. Anyway, this contains massive spoilers, and I guess that's what you would expect from a series finale. But with that warning, let's uh, turn it over to Dr. Michael Merrick. Yes, and this one is a little bit longer than many of our summaries. There's so much going on in this episode. As the Enterprise-D approaches the Sol system, it detects a Borg cube at Jupiter, and the Enterprise goes there. The cube is hovering inside Jupiter's great red spot, and it's only 36% operable. It's clear that there is kind of a spinny, swirly thing gadget inside it that's amplifying the signals from Jack, who is now fully Borgified, and the remains of the Collective is directing the attack on Earth through him. Beverly scans detect Jack. Picard, Riker, and Worf beam onto the Borg cube and find that most of the drones there are dead. They're being consumed to power that swirly thing. Picard heads off to rescue Jack while Riker and Worf go to find out where the spinny thing is. Meanwhile, Seven, Raffi, and a few of the other crew members who are older than 25 retake the Titan Bridge and retake control of the ship because they can't be detected while the Titan's cloaking device is active. They can get away from the fleet formation and they can engage in hit and run attacks to try to divert the fleet's focus from Earth. Picard finds Jack and a Borg Queen, who's obviously in very tough shape. Picard plugs himself into the Borg system and persuades Jack to use his willpower to leave the Collective. Jack is willing to do that because he has found a family. He's found a connection. Riker and Worf find the control system that tells them where the spinny thing is, and it's in the exact center of the cube. Although there's doubt as to whether they can succeed, Enterprise plunges into the Borg ship, just like the Millennium Falcon, and maneuvers to the center, piloted by Data, who is really having a pretty good time doing that. They face the ethical dilemma that destroying the swirly thing will result in destruction of the cube, meaning the deaths of Riker, Picard, Worf, and Jack, because there's too much interference to just beam them off the cube. But it's what needs to be done. They fire. And in a minute or so before the cube explodes, the interference drops. Deanna pilots Enterprise to where she senses Riker is. And all four of them on the away team were beamed up to the Enterprise so they can escape the Borg cube explosion. The final scenes that wrap up the series and the Next Generation story arc show Tuvok promoting Seven to Captain of the Titan. Raffi receiving a positive overture from her son. 
a one-year later scene in which Picard, Riker, and Geordi inspect the Enterprise D now back on full display in the Fleet Museum and power down the ship. We see the Titan renamed the USS Enterprise G with Captain Seven in command, Raffi as first officer, and Jack and Sydney on the crew. The Next Generation cast members celebrate in Guinan's 10 Forward Bar playing poker. And it seems like that's the end of the episode, except there's a mid-credits scene in which Jack is in his quarters on the Enterprise, visited by Q, who it turns out is not dead. And he says that while Picard's trial is over, Jack's is just beginning. End of episode end of season, end of series, and possibly the end of the entire storyline for the next generation characters, unless they show up again someplace else. So that is my summary. All right. Great. So our main podcast mission is to talk about the philosophy, the themes, and the morals in this episode, and I guess the season now. Yeah. And But we usually talk about some production details first. The design, continuity with past Star Trek, character development, other things we found worthy of note. And, you know, Rodney, it's really hard to know where to start on this episode. <laughs> it has a lot of action, a lot of feels, yeah, and yeah. it ends, essentially ends a 35-year story, although it also poses a possible new beginning. The resolution of the Borg assimilation threat takes about two-thirds of the episode. And as you noted, it's a longer-than-usual episode. You know what? This episode revealed to me how emotionally connected I am to the next generation. And I, I don't I don't think I realized <laughs> yeah. the strength of that connection. But returning to this episode now, I, I've been noticing a lot of expository dialogue this season. And we get more of it in this episode. In the teaser, the crew of the D, they reiterate what President Chekhov tells them. And then in the first act, Picard reiterates what they told us in the teaser. You know, as a writer, there are times when you have to have a character tell another character something that would really be obvious to that character, but we're really explaining something for the audience. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, you know, we have that. And the more technobabble and the more complexity in a science fiction plot, probably the more you need to say things like that. And the secret is doing it in a way that it doesn't hit you over the head if you've already figured out what the characters are explaining. Mm -hmm. Rodney, I think you can't help but make a comparison in this episode between the Enterprise diving inside the Borg cube and the Millennium Falcon diving inside the Death Star. My thoughts exactly. It's I, impossible. <laughs> I don't want to disrespect Star Trek, but we might even nickname this episode Star Trek A New Hope. <laughs> right. I did raise my eyebrows at this whole, the whole sequence because the Enterprise D is big. The common That's... numbers you find out there on the internet say it's 640 meters long which is about 2,100 feet. That's over a third of a mile, a width of 467 wow. meters or over 1,500 feet in terms of length. That's more than five, almost six football fields in length. And that can be either American football or what the rest of the world calls football. 
it's kind of big to be dodging around like a fighter, as we saw. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I'm not saying it's impossible. And of course, they had a really good pilot that could make nanosecond, microsecond decisions uh, mm -hmm. with his semi-computer brain. But it's certainly lucky there was a pathway big enough to accommodate the Enterprise all the way through the cube. And maybe that's why they estimated the chances of success as being so low. Although in one scene, it's just a, a blip of a scene. We see on a, on a view screen, we saw a diagram of the cube and a, and a line kind of being drawn as if that's what scan, what scanners say is the path the enterprise would need to follow. Yeah. That red uh, path Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> that looked like a path you might draw trying to get through a maze. Yeah. It was, I, it was a 3d maze. It was circuitous. Yeah. I agree with you, Michael. I just, I guess you just have to not think about that too much. <laughs> you know, and, and we've started with a couple of kind of questions of the episode and, and that doesn't reduce our interest in it at all. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. So let me be sure to say that as a student of the Borg, I was very interested to see this cube in such bad shape. Now, when Voyager ended, we thought that might have been really the end of the Borg because they're in, well, one of their transwarp conduits and possibly all of their transwarp conduit network had been destroyed. At least one and probably more of their unimatrixes, unimatrices were blown up just really good. If you consider only live action Star Trek, we've only seen two Borg cubes since the Voyager finale. That's the artifact, which was found as a derelict in really bad shape. And then this current cube, which is also in, in really bad shape. The Queen explains that Jack or his signals somehow found her when there was no collective left and only loneliness. So it appears that the entire plot to partner with the changelings and assimilate humanity was the work of just this one ship's submatrix uh, after the overall destruction of the connectivity, at least of the, of the collective that was spearheaded by Janeway by the version of Captain Janeway who traveled back in time from the future in the Voyager series finale. Speaking of Borg overconfidence, the Borg Queen specifically invited Picard onto the cube to use her phrase from Star Trek First Contact to see his future's end. But the Queen apparently did not consider what else the boarding party might do. Borg always have overconfidence when it comes to other people being on their ships. Maybe that overconfidence is, is in a way the product of their isolation. You know, if people, if they isolate themselves from others, uh, tend to develop a bit of, uh, well, hubris, I guess you know, over the confidence in themselves and their abilities. You know, in a problem-solving situation, people need to feel safe in saying, now there may be a problem with that, or I'm not sure that's a good idea. And I'm not sure that happens in the board collective because no. they are so tightly coupled together. I don't think you have alternative voices suggesting alternative paths there. No, sometimes it's good to have somebody just slap you upside the head and say, what are you doing? <laughs> well, and a good manager welcomes feedback that yeah. isn't just what the manager wants to do. So right. I, I guess just, you know, about the Borg, it, it still leaves me wondering what the status of the Borg is, the overall status in the beta and the Delta quadrants or even farther away are now all of the ships disconnected from each other. Did the entire collective collapse 
due to the loss of the, the transwarp conduit connectivity? Did every Borg ship submatrix then fall apart? What is the future of the Borg in Star Trek storytelling? I would be happy if basically the last generation of this episode shudders the Borg as bad guys. Yeah, we've seen an awful lot of the Borg. I mean, a lot. And I'm not necessarily complaining here, but it sounds like, and hopefully this is an overconfidence, but in this episode, Jack, doesn't he basically declare them dead? I think mm -hmm. once he's disconnected, he, he says something yeah. like the time of the Borg is over. I'm with you, Michael. I, I'm ready to you know, have the Borg in the rearview mirror. But I, I would also like to see Gerardi's Borg make a reappearance, maybe even as Federation allies. I, I was tantalized by that possibility at the end of season two. Well, and we know so. from Lower Decks looking, what is it, hundreds or thousands of years into the future that there are children in a classroom that have Borg appliances on their head. So <laughs> there there may still be a role there for Gerardi's Borg. But yeah. just as a stock villain in Star Trek, I would be happy if we moved beyond that for storytelling. Yeah. Here's another thing. And again, I'm not complaining about this, but there are several plot devices in this episode. A plot device is something that the audience is just expected to accept without explanation. It's a plot device that no Vulcans, Andorians, Klingons, or anybody else other than the Enterprise D responded to Earth's distress calls. It's convenient that there aren't other people coming in to help. It's a mm -hmm. plot device that suddenly in this episode, everybody just knows that there's a signal controlling the assimilated Starfleet members and that cutting off the signal will return them to normal. That's right. It's just the president, President Chekhov just declares that. Mm -hmm. at the and the folks of on the, the enterprise, you know, understand it intuitively, apparently. It's a plot device that the Borg Queen somehow made that initial contact with Jack. And that must have been months or even years before season three began. There was really no clarity as to how that happened for him to talk to the assimilated Starfleet members around Earth. They needed an amplifier and there wouldn't have been an amplifier. So we just have to understand that it happened and it's not part of the story as to how it happened. It's a plot device that the Borg targeted a whole bunch of cities on Earth but after the targeting, they just kind of hung out for a while. They took their own sweet time in firing so that our heroes would have time to stop the signal. It's a plot device that Jack can disconnect himself from the collective whenever he wants, at least if he's sufficiently motivated, which is way different from what we've ever seen in the past. Okay, he did have Picard's help. I think I'd be motivated if Picard gave me a hug, but are you saying that even with that extra bit of motivation, he shouldn't have been able to do that? Well, I'm just saying that this is something we haven't seen before, and it was the Borg Queen who initially said he's the only one who can disconnect himself, and I don't mm. think that's something that we've ever encountered before in stories about the Borg. Okay, but it's the power of love, Michael. Yeah, I'm just commenting on these. Writers often use plot devices. They simply assert something to advance the plot. And it's yeah. not a bad thing unless it stretches credibility too far, which I do not think is the case here in The Last Generation. And just something I'm observing about the production. I wasn't bothered by any of these things. It did seem to me that the assault on the space dock went on 
a long time. I mean, I, I was saying with all that firepower, I would have expected it to fall much sooner. I don't know if that's a plot device or if I'm just underestimating how well defended Earth would be. As a space dock, like a dry dock for spaceships, it certainly had a lot of firepower. Yeah. Rodney, I want to talk about the poker scene. Okay. I timed it and it lasted 90 seconds before the credits started appearing. And with counting, wow. including the part with the credits appearing, it was a total of three minutes long. That is incredibly long for a TV scene, particularly one that only has just background dialogue. But it's clear that the producers wanted to reinforce both the family feeling of the group mm. and, and to yeah. show their connection, which at the beginning of the season had been paused for a couple of decades, that but show that it's fully restored. And I think when I saw that, I the very first thing I thought of was the final shot in the Next Generation series finale. Surely they wanted to invoke resonate, that resonate, similarity. Yeah, invoke yeah. that, resonate it, yeah, in, in the, the picture from above. Now, Terry Metalis, the showrunner, has said that they ran the camera for 45 minutes. I mean, they took some of the initial shots, but they ran the camera in a continual shot for 45 minutes and just had the actors ad lib to play poker, to have fun, to speak in character, of course, but he wanted to capture what it's really like to hang out with these characters and with the actors and see what their interaction among themselves was like. And he teased that maybe in the Blu-ray, when that comes out, they may have an extra featuring a longer version, a longer cut of that poker scene. A longer cut? Yeah. If you had a chance to play poker with the Enterprise D crew for 45 minutes, how would you feel about it? <laughs> I, I think I would... Count me in. Yeah. Um, and, and all of those folks in real life, they're very good friends, aren't they? Certainly, they would continue to be friends after the show ended, but they see each other at conventions probably yeah. several times a year. So it's not yeah. like they haven't seen each other for 20 years or whatever True. it is. They see each other often, and, and they're probably in contact with each other a lot. I do have several other things I want to touch on here and there's a lot to talk about in this episode, and we can't talk about everything. But Federation President Anton Chekhov is certainly intended to be a descendant of Pavel Chekhov from the original series. You know, something like 160 years would have passed since Pavel's birth. And for Pavel to be Anton's father, well, Pavel would have had to father a child at around age 80, and Anton would have had to be around 80 at the time of the last generation. That's not impossible. We know from McCoy that living over a century is not out of bounds in the next generation era, but it also doesn't seem likely to me that Pavel is Anton's father, more likely grandfather. Anton may be named for the famous Russian writer of that name, who may in turn have been the inspiration for the character name of Chekhov in the 1960s. You know, I did read one reviewer saying that the name is a tribute to Anton Yelchin. That is, of course, the actor who played Chekhov in the Kelvin Timeline movies. And who died tragically. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Note that Anton's distress call is remarkably similar to the Federation president's call in Star Trek The Voyage Home. Some of the lines of dialogue were identical. I didn't mention it last week, but this season is the first time we've seen a Borg ship with pointy things sticking out of the mm -hmm. sides. 
my first impression is that they're radio antennas because I have a radio background and things, but at least the pointy things sticking out make it visually more threatening toward the Enterprise. Yeah, and it just occurred to me that it makes it look like Nero's ship in the 2009 Star Trek movie. Yeah. Um, which just, looked pretty threatening, too. <laughs> you know, the, a Borg cube in and of itself, we've learned, can be very threatening. But the pointy things sticking out, uh, I think, uh, emphasize that. In this episode, we see a couple of the Next Generation crew doing things we're not used to seeing them do. Beverly at Tactical. We're not used to seeing her firing weapons and things. Yeah, there's a good scene there. I mean, when they're flying around the cube, firing on it. And they look back at her and she says, a lot has changed in the last 20 years. Yeah, you can see why Gates McFadden thought this season really moves her character far beyond her next generation doctor's role. And we're also not used to seeing Deanna at the helm. Mm -hmm. Her character has been the butt of a lot of unfair jokes because last time we saw her at the helm, the ship crashed on Brutian 3. It's unfair because on that occasion, because of the damage to the engines, she had very little control of the ship. And essentially, she was the one that kept it from crashing worse. They kept them oh. from all being killed by right. impact. So among everything else, this episode is a mini redemption story for Deanna. Because in this case, she really rocks it when she takes the helm. Yeah, and I, I think that's unfair too, those jokes. Because, of course, Starfleet officers are going to be trained to take all kinds of stations on board. And she's, I'm sure, a competent pilot. I think Strange New Worlds is doing a good job of showing this with uh, Uhura's training. You know, they learn a lot of things about starships. Yeah, we saw in this episode, even the cook has flight training, training, even though it isn't a primary part of the job. In this episode, when Riker expects to die, he tells Deanna that he and Thad, their son, will be waiting for her in the afterlife. Yeah. But remember that in episode four of this season, Riker is is expressing his grief over Thad's death, saying that while he wants to believe in life after death or the survival of the human soul, he's seen no evidence of this. So we see a change in that perspective. Of course, remember that at the end of Star Trek Generations, Riker tells Picard that he intends to live forever. Hmm. Recent Star Trek has reimagined the visual effects of a starship traveling at warp. Yeah. Today in in modern Star Trek, it generally looks a lot more like traveling in, in a kind of tunnel of light. But we get a brief glimpse of the Enterprise D at warp in this episode. And it was pretty much the traditional next generation depiction of the individual points of light streaking past, not what I think of as the tunnel of light. I didn't notice that. And Rodney, did it seem to you that the Queen just wanted to kill all the humans on Earth? Or was the attack somehow going to run everybody on Earth through a transporter to borgify them? I I wasn't quite clear. The Queen really seemed to be kind of wacko. And although she kept talking about the next generation of the Borg, it seemed it was mainly an attack focused on revenge. You know, there was that bit of dialogue in which she said... In the past, the Borg has been focused on assimilation. Now, what we do is annihilation. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think she wanted to kill. But then, was it Picard who said, you know, the new way of doing things is procreation? I I, I don't know. There was that too, yeah. yeah. There are many questions, and, and I'm not saying it was a failure, 
there are many questions about the Borg and the Borg Queen and the motivation that we never got to. And that's fine. Uh, we don't necessarily need to, but it still leaves, leaves uh, questions there. And finally, Rodney, for this section of the podcast, before we start talking about the morals to the story, let's talk about Picard's toast in Guinan's Ten Forward. Mm -hmm. It is not surprising that Picard quoted Shakespeare. Oh, okay. I Julius Caesar, <laughs> Act 4, Scene 3, in which Brutus refers to how it's best for ships, for sailing ships, to sail at high tide. You know, you mm -hmm. always hear that, we'll leave at high tide, to, to, to leave when the tide is right. And Brutus says that in human affairs, one must take advantage of opportunities, essentially when the metaphorical tide is favorable or lose the opportunities. So in other words, take bold action, which is pretty much what this crew has done for all of their Starfleet careers. Right. Well, there's a lot we could talk about, uh, but we'll go ahead and turn the page now and talk about meaning. And the question here is what messages the writers and or producers want us to take away from this episode. And we might as well talk about the entire season and maybe even the entire series. Well, I'm not sure I would go quite so far as to say that the main intended message of the entire Picard series is about ageism. Mm. But I think the finale certainly makes the point that older folks can still make valuable contributions. I agree. And, and have experience and expertise that young folks may not have acquired yet. And therefore, older folks are worthy of respect, which often doesn't happen in our culture. Now, the original idea that attracted Patrick Stewart to make more Star Trek was to acknowledge that time had passed and show how the characters had changed. And they are different now, but I think we've seen this season, in spite of those differences, we still see the familiar core down inside each one of them. Absolutely. And they're having fun with it, too. I'm thinking of the scene in which they go back to the D from the cube and Worf sits down and starts and immediately falls asleep and starts snoring. They're different now, but they're the same characters we've always known and loved. Yeah, I thought in this episode, we do see an old Star Trek theme resurface. I'm sure you saw it too. Vox, that is, you know, an assimilated Jack says that assimilation is going to give everyone peace and prosperity in a perfect universe without fear and loss. Now, the irony is he says this from a Borg cube aboard which drones are being cannibalized <laughs> to sustain the cube and the queen and the beacon. But this reminded me of a original series episode, The Apple, right? In which Kirk says of the people of Gamma Trianguli 6, these people aren't living, they're existing. They don't create, produce, or even think. They exist to serve a machine, Vol, remember? Mm -hmm, certainly. So, and I think also the people of Beta 3, they were living in this arrested culture under Landrew, so Kirk thought that he had to intervene there as well. Well, Borg culture maybe is able to live and grow, but the drones aren't, really. And I'm just saying that we're seeing, again, this old Star Trek theme of the importance of self-determination, right? Mm -hmm. The right of individuals to live in accordance with their own goals and values and not totally subsumed under a collective. Yeah, I agree. One of the bigger overarching messages this season has been about connection and family. We've mm -hmm. seen that play out several times in this episode, and we've talked about that almost every podcast this season, I think, maybe. 
Jack has found his family, which is what motivates him or allows him to withdraw from the collective. Picard, uh, as a young man, found his family in Starfleet, but nevertheless kept himself at a distance. When family members on the away team are at risk, we really see the concern of those back on the Enterprise Bridge, the fear in their eyes. And and so there's a, a lot of dialogue about connection and family. But I think this time the Borg Collective plays into this theme as well, particularly in Voyager. But whenever we've seen drones liberated from the collective, except for maybe Picard himself, they've all wanted to go back. Mm-hmm. Now, you can say that this was some kind of brainwashing. Yeah, the, the taking away of the individualism that you just talked about, Rodney. But the XBs cite never being alone, never being lonely, and they really miss it when they're somehow uh, withdrawn from the collective. Now, I'm an introvert. Never being alone would not be something to avoid for me. <laughs> but a lot of people get freaked out by loneliness and isolation, as we saw in like 2020 in the worst of the COVID shutdown when everybody was stuck at home. Up to now, the Borg have not given people a choice about being assimilated. But once they are assimilated, they perceive at least that they experience acceptance. In terms of what we use today, the Borg become their reference group. And compare that to today when some people are not accepted by their families or their governments. Every example I give would have political implications, which we should probably steer clear of. But if we think about it a bit, you'll see how much them and us there is in the world today of people that should feel a connection and uh, if not a family relationship, a close cultural relationship. In the collective, there's none of that. There are no factions. There are no ostracized members of the collective. And remember last season, the alternate timeline board queen had this same almost desperate need for connection. So I think that it's admirable that the writers have taken the relationship between Jack and the collective beyond the simple assimilation takes away freedom stories of the past. Those have been important stories, but I think that it's admirable we've taken a step beyond that. Right. That's the theme that I was talking about before. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you and I talk, Rodney, about having complex bad guys that we can understand. And the Borg have never been complex. They have been two-dimensional. They've been black and white. And that's maybe one of the things that makes them scary. But now we see them as at least believing that they're offering a promise of peace and prosperity, no fear, no loss. They believe their promise. And we can see now that they believed it all the way back to the best of both worlds with uh, Locutus saying he wants to improve quality of life. People have gone in for totalitarian regimes in the past based on very similar promises. And remember, the Borg Queen is talking about herself using first person Mm -hmm. uh, and and our understanding that she's nevertheless a voice of the collective. So uh, of all the remaining drones alive on the ship. So she's not really speaking as an individual, even though she uses first person. Jack seems to be speaking as an individual when he's managing the attack on Earth. But still, he's also speaking on behalf of what's left of the collective on this ship with his knowledge and experience now being part of what remains of the collective on that one ship. Okay. Well, it seems to me that uh, you and I, Michael, have had similar thoughts about this episode. Jack, 
young people, I think everybody really has a choice. You know, if you're lonely, you can attempt to build connections with family and or friends and other loved ones, individuals in your community, or you can join groups which promise you love and a sense of belonging, but in reality may only want to use you as a mere means to the ends of the group. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what the Borg queen is doing here, right? The Borg offers peace, prosperity, et cetera, but at what cost, right? And the Borg queen, she makes these promises and by extension, so do the Borg, but the queen and the Borg consider Jack to be a tool to be used. And even if Jack wants to be used an assimilated Jack, even if he wants to be used, you know, that doesn't make it acceptable. I think this is my James T. Kirk coming out here, (laughs) but I I think, yeah, the message of this season is political really. Mm -hmm. Here's another perspective, another uh, thing to look at as a true Starfleet captain. Seven is called on to give a speech to inspire her crew. Mm-hmm. All captains do it sooner or later. It's basically a mm-hmm. we are Starfleet moment. The captain, again, she's not technically a captain yet, but the captain giving an inspirational speech is a Star Trek cliche. But Seven rises to the occasion. She asks her people to fight for what's below the people on Earth who are their families. And of course, if Earth falls, the rest of the Federation and maybe even the rest of life in in the galaxy would be threatened so even the aliens on the bridge are fighting for their families as she describes it where all that's left of starfleet she says it's up to us and they have to do what's right not just what's easy and i think that's an important philosophical and ethical principle do what's right not just what's easy right oftentimes what is right is not easy Mm -hmm. it's also interesting that a couple times in the script we hear the phrase like you've got this or i've got this and that is certainly a 21st century idiom but it again it relates back to inspiring people and self-confidence and doing it right even if it seems to be hard and rodney yet again in this episode we have the ethical question of the needs of the many the needs of the many yep. proposition as both the enterprise and the titan crews each have their backs to the wall and they're doing their duty despite the odds. We've often found that Star Trek usually refutes the philosophy that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Now, you could perceive that this is reflected in the ethical decision to destroy the swirly thing and destroy the Borg ship, knowing that therefore family members will likely die. But the needs of the few being important are also evidenced in the story when the Enterprise doesn't just escape the Borg cube before the explosion, but digs in, Deanna's at the helm, they rescue the few. Both of these things constituted ethical decisions, doing what they believed would save Earth and life in the galaxy as a whole, but not abandoning their found family in spite of the danger. Yeah, again, you and I are having uh, similar thoughts here, uh, just to give you my take on it. So the crew of the D, they encounter this terrible moral dilemma that you described, destroy the cube and potentially the members of their own family along with it to save the galaxy or spare the lives of their loved ones and let the galaxy fall. Well, of course, they make the right decision as terrible as it is. But you see that Worf and Riker are willing to make that sacrifice and they understand the necessity of it. 
And also notice that Jordy appeared unwilling to order the destruction of the cube until Beverly consented to it. Did you notice that? Yeah. So we have here a kind of mix of the needs of the many and the needs of the few. And what I mean by that is they recognize that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few here, but since their loved ones have to be willing to make that sacrifice, the needs of the few also outweigh the needs of the many. <laughs> and they have to try to resolve the two. Yeah. yeah. But that's why the story has them succeeding at both, because we wouldn't like the story if one or the other failed. I wouldn't like that story. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, are we ready for some final thoughts here, Michael? I think we are. On The Last Generation, the episode, on the season, and maybe even the series as well, the whole thing. I thought it was a very strong episode. And yes, we've critiqued it in ways that some people will say some of your comments are not positive, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And it was satisfying. It was thrilling. It was thought-provoking. The first two-thirds really completed the story arc of the season, saving everybody mm -hmm. from the Borg. And it was the final third that wrapped up the Next Generation story. In that last 20 minutes, Rodney, there were several times when I thought, okay, that's the last scene. And then yet another scene popped up uh, a moment or so later. I really like the episode also. I, I feel really good about this season. What irks me, though, I have to say it. I've said it before. What irks me about the episode is where the hell is Laris? Sorry to put it that way. But it's as if she never existed. And Picard told Jack that he was all alone at the vineyard? No, he wasn't. I thought this episode and season three were strong. I Don't get me wrong. I, I really, really like them. But they've ignored basically everything that happened in Picard before. Now, maybe some fans are happy with that. I think it's a mistake. I mean, I grew to really like those characters and enjoy those characters. And you can't sort of surgically detach <laughs> season three from the rest of it. It, it. it irks me that it appears that that's what they attempted to do here. Yeah. I mean, we saw Laris in, in the first episode, of course. It would have been nice yeah. to have some kind of reference even if the actress doesn't appear, some kind of reference to her to close that loop. And I think yeah. a lot of the time Picard was at the vineyard socially alone. I mean, he had employees and things like that. But uh, I think uh, leading up to season one, before Soji showed up, I think he was pretty socially isolated and not finding life to be very fulfilling. Yeah, and I have no doubt about that, Michael, but you have to admit that Laris, and now I've forgotten his name, they were more than just mere employees for Picard, don't you think? That's a backstory that would be interesting, too. They were former Romulan spies and mm -hmm. all that stuff. But uh, still, they were, you know, as much as anyone on the Enterprise D, he held them at a distance also. Oh, that is, yeah, I see, right. You know, Rodney, no series finale really ends the story for the characters, or at least I can't think of one. Think about every series finale you've ever seen in any genre of television. The main story arc may have ended, but it just takes us to a good stopping place. We always know that the lives of the characters will continue. In most cases, continue happily. It's a rare season finale that actually sets up a sequel as The Last Generation did. But this one does set up characters in a situation that seems very appealing for more stories on the on the Enterprise G. 
Absolutely. As you were talking, I was just thinking of, of only, I could think of only one thing that really ended the story of the characters and that's uh, Shakespeare's play Hamlet. But that having been said, some reviewers I've read are complaining about how they set up a spinoff that they use this episode to set up a spinoff. I don't have a problem with that, Michael, because I think this episode would have been just fine without that setup. I think the, the episode stands alone, even with all that setup being done. I mean, don't you? I don't object to it at all. And, you yeah. know, there, there are so many series finales that end with seeing the characters continuing with their lives. And the examples I'm going to give are probably kind of weird. But, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, Stargate SG-1, the very last time uh, we saw those Stargate characters. I'm not talking about Stargate Universe that ended on a cliffhanger, but the main SG-1 characters, the the finale, that they're just going through the gate again on another mission. And did oh, you ever right. watch Monk? Yeah, actually, yeah. Michael, we just finished that okay. the, a month the, or the, two ago. The conclusion of Monk is yep. this uh, detective, police consultant detective, is on another case. And it's That's just right. business as usual. So the, the storyline... And the mystery of the season maybe is concluded, but the characters are continuing. And yes, this could be a setup for a spinoff, but if not, it's the characters continuing. And so I, I think it worked worked fine. The episode name, The Last Generation, is clearly intended to bookend the season premiere episode title, which was The Next Generation. But in this context, the term last could have more than one meaning. It could mean former, like we talked about last week, last century. So the title is likely a reference to, if you will, the former generation, our next generation heroes being called on again to, to save the day. But, you know, there's another meaning of last, which is final. So the title could, among other things, refer to the final generation. The Borg Queen talked about her ship being the last of the old kind of Borg, mm -hmm. anticipating a new generation of Borg who are not going to grow by the former kinds of assimilation through technology. She also said that the changelings felt anger at the Federation over the generation their kind lost to Starfleet in that war, even though the changelings kind of started it. So I think there is multiple meanings here. It's not only about the last outing of our next generation heroes. It's about change and turning the corner to what comes next for both the good guys and maybe the bad guys too. I must say I have mixed feelings about the vines and the red door subplot this season. Really? On the one hand, it seems like they could have streamlined that, found some more economical way to show Jack's feeling connection, hidden connection to the Borg. But like many recent Star Trek series that had season-long story arcs, Picard season three feels, on the one hand, like it could have been an episode or two shorter and moved the story along a little more promptly, but still tell it effectively and have the same impact. But on the other hand, The Red Door did allow Ed Spielers to really shine as an actor, as Jack. And we noted True. in a previous podcast that Jack's door was very similar to the door young Jean-Luc didn't want to open in season two. 
Mm-hmm. It occurred to me this week that we also saw vines in previous seasons of Picard as well. Of course, the vineyard vines, the grape vines, and the greenhouse. I guess it was a greenhouse or the glass gazebo in uh, in the chateau and in the opening credits. So right. maybe at a very subtle level, Jack's vines and door were intended to subtly demonstrate a connection to his father too, through repeating that imagery we saw in the previous seasons. Finally, Rodney, if I want to sum up everything, I want to talk about mythology. From a scholarly perspective, a myth is a story that is told again and again and shapes how we understand the world. In the academic context, it doesn't matter whether a myth is true or not. It's not a question of truth, not a question of how recent or old it is. It's defined as a myth by virtue of being told again and again, often in a little bit different ways each time, and by the virtue of the social impact it has. And from this perspective, I think Star Trek is a body of work that can be seen as a complete mythology. It's a basic story that essentially has been retold endlessly, something like 880 episodes in movies at last count. As with any myth, there are some variations across the different tellings, but the same underlying meaning, the repeated moral and ethical and philosophical messages that address how we see the world or how we should see it are there. So I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking about the fact that in the world of mythology, and particularly in European mythology, it is common for heroes to be asleep for the purposes of coming again when called or needed. The most familiar example of that's King Arthur, of course, who's supposedly sleeping in Avalon, but the dormant sleeping hero waiting to come again to be called is a common image in heroic myth. And that thought reminded me of our past podcast discussions of hero ships. The Enterprise D is certainly one of the heroes of the next generation, and in many ways a character in itself. And in this season, Picard awakened the sleeping hero, you might say, when called (laughs) on at the critical need of the Federation. And now our hero ship is a sleeping hero again, waiting for that possible next mythic call alongside our other sleeping star trek hero ships i love it will they get the call again i don't know but i do know that the enterprise d set the bridge set is safely in storage someplace just in case no just in case awesome (laughs) great well with that we thank you for joining us for this podcast We will be back when Strange New Worlds premieres in June. Now, we've talked about maybe some special episodes during this uh, hiatus. Now, if we do that, we will update you in our social media feeds on Mastodon, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can find those at Trek underscore Academy. Also, Tumblr at Trek Academy without the underscore. And, of course, our podcasts can be found at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. And don't forget that you can subscribe via whatever app you use to automatically get the new podcast downloads. Well, we thank you for listening, and we will see you next time on the Star Trek Academy podcast.